Behind the noise with Adam Bornstein. Behind the noise, behind the noise. Episode 6. This is Behind the Noise with Adam and Anushka Bornstein. It's Monday, March 16th. Let me open by saying schools are out, and today I have a helper, my daughter Anushka. In addition to that, I'm sending white light to all our listeners as we collectively circle the wagons to address the corona pandemic. My mother, who's a Reiki master, telegrammed me last night to remind me to do this. I'm not sure how to do this, but I am now waving my hands in front of the screen. Please let me know if the white light hits up. This week's podcast features Lawrence Camp, former director and now a senior advisor with USAID's Private Capital and Microenterprise Office, which is part of the Bureau for Economic Growth, Education, and Environment, or E3. I first got to know Lawrence when I worked at USAID in 2015, and he's been sharing his knowledge of structure and innovative financing in a developmental context across the agency for over 25 years. It's not that often that we get a first-hand look at how developmental finance has pivoted over the years since the fall of the Iron Curtain in the early 1990s, when former Soviet states were cut loose from command economics, to today, where economic supply chains dominate market economies. Lawrence and I get into the role of alternative financing structures such as blended finance and pay-for-performance, the evolving role of development banks as catalytic funders rather than principal funders, and whether it's a good idea for humanitarian organizations to dance with development agencies. Join us as we go to the heart of the issues and get behind the noise. I'm Anushka, and this is Episode 6. The Danish Red Cross's award-winning innovative finance and systems change team is on the clock 24-7, spinning up and developing scalable, commercially viable, and ecosystem-driven solutions and mechanisms for a complex and fluid humanitarian universe. Interested in being inspired? Tweet the team at DRC Innovation. A few weeks after joining USAID in 2015, I started hearing rumors in the hall and the food court of a finance sage who was responsible for a clutch of innovative financing mechanisms. His name, Lawrence Camp, and I'm delighted to welcome Lawrence to the podcast today. Uh, Thank you, Adam. It's a pleasure. So Lawrence, I know you have an unforgiving traveling schedule. Hopefully you're not on the road this week. No, uh, I'm in Washington, D.C. right now. Actually, right now, nobody's traveling uh, within the agency, so travel has been shut down for the time being. That's good. I think people are going to be sheltering for quite a while over the next few months. So you have a really interesting background, starting off in the private sector up into the mid-early 90s, and from then working in the development space for the last 20-plus years. Could you walk us through the highlights and maybe what triggered your decision to get active in development? I'm happy to. Um, first, I do want to say, uh, Adam, that I uh, do work at USAID, uh, but I'm speaking as uh, an individual and a friend of yours. I'm not uh, representing USAID's positions in any way. <clears throat> but uh, AID uh, was a second career for me. I started out in, um, in finance, uh, in banking, and then got into corporate finance. Um, and uh, um, did that for about 15 or 16 years. The collapse of the Soviet uh, Union 
there was real interest in reforming those uh, the financial sectors and moving ahead with privatization. Uh, I was looking for a change after having done um, a banking in a fairly tumultuous environment uh, and uh, after the downturn in the uh, basically late 80s, early 90s, and did a two-year contract with USAID. It was the most fascinating thing I've ever done uh, with just some interesting projects, a $260 million uh, fund, um, reconstruction fund in Bosnia uh, post-conflict, privatization activities throughout Central and Eastern Europe, dealing with the problem debt overhang, uh, business uh, restructuring, enterprise restructuring, the whole transition from, from command economy to market economy. So in that, uh, I, I stayed. And the uh, agency is very lucky that, that you stayed for sure. So around that time, the uh, early 90s, my family used to have a Nissan and Fiat dealership on Cape Cod. I remember when Yugo started importing cars to the United States in the early 90s, I think around 92. That was around the same time that Kia entered the United States. There was a debate in our family, um, mainly between my dad and myself, which brand would leave first. He basically thought Yugo would be out in a few days, and I was thinking it would probably be the South Koreans. This prompted my interest in Yugoslavia. So around this time, Bosnia broke free of Yugoslavia. They got their independence, which dovetails into your time with USAID in the former Soviet states. So I think Bosnia's GDP around 93 was between 3 and $4 billion. Essentially, USAID injected an equivalent of about 8% of Bosnia's GDP. That would be the $260 million um, development funding you mentioned earlier. So there must have been some level of concern and speculation that Bosnia's economy, the legal framework, and the overall ideological mindset of its citizens was fragile. Did you find this to be the case, or were you surprised by what you found in the former Soviet bloc? What I think people were unexpecting and not expecting was that in uh, Bosnia and in Central Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union generally, these were functioning economies, uh, inefficient, um, and at the end of the day, the command economy was not able to be as effective in the allocation of resources, allocation of resources uh, as a market economy was. Uh, but uh, the sense was that essentially they had enterprises, they did business, they had banks, and it was sort of a question of swapping out an operating system. So moving from, you know, from Windows to, to OS. Uh, and in fact, we found that, um, it was certainly much, much more challenging, and the challenges permeated uh, throughout the throughout the entire system. So there were real gaps. There certainly wasn't any real need for, if you will, financial remediation on any sophisticated terms. So there was real no capacity to sort of understand, if you will, risk to price risk. Um, uh, the range of certainly financial instruments was very weak at that point as well. There was basically no liquidity. The, essentially, that uh, system, the, the command system, essentially drained all liquidity in the system in there. So there was really uh, sort of much less to work with uh, than we had thought. Uh, interestingly, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, who was a noted economist at that time who worked in that area, uh, said that probably the biggest predictor of uh, transition, the success of transition, was the uh, basically the distance of the country from Berlin 
by which he meant uh, really those countries that were sort of closer to or had more muscle memory, the Czech Republics, the Polands, the Hungries, uh, very rapidly sort of said, okay, we, we know how to do this stuff and, and we remember it. Whereas others uh, really in the Balkans, uh, uh, further, uh, you know, the Ukraines and others further on out had more of a challenging time in, and still do, in uh, moving to a market economy. I was just reflecting the other day that in Bosnia, I think still as much as 60% or more of the uh, of employment, of formal employment is, uh, is uh, through the state. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring up Bosnia because in some ways Ethiopia is like that a lot. If you step outside of Ethiopia, for example, in Kenya, it's the land of opportunity where private sector flourishes and jobs are abound. But in reality, when you get here, it's not a very friendly environment for the private sector. So since we're on the topic of capacity, I did some research and I took a look at USAID's accountability reports because I was interested in the staff headcount. And between 1993 and 98, USAID reduced its headcount by 35%. The report flagged that these staff reductions greatly affected USAID's capacity to operate effectively overseas. My own view is that staff numbers are less critical to success than one, having the right tools and, and mechanisms, and two, um, having the space and flexibility to make decisions. And these are the individuals on the ground being able to make these decisions. So were the mechanisms that you were working with fit for purpose? And did you have room and the authority to make things happen? Could you use some innovation? Could you be creative? Could you change things up in order to connect the dots? Well, uh, in that time, um, <clears throat> there was uh, what they call notwithstanding authority, which meant that there was a great deal of leeway in terms of the things that we could and couldn't do because there was a real urgency that uh, this transition had to occur uh, quickly. Um, and so I think uh, uh, USAID and others were really willing to kind of try a lot of different and creative things. So the rules were pretty flexible in there. Um, some of the things we did, uh, again, I think in Bosnia, for example, an innovative kind of an idea in which uh, post uh, the, the NATO conflict in Bosnia, uh, the state-owned enterprises that certainly were comprised, you know, 99% of employment were wrecked uh, by and large. Um, and you had a lot of uh, disenchanted, uh, disenfranchised uh, young people. And I think there was a certain urgency to sort of get things back up and going. The approach that we took at that point in time was really not to provide, if you will, grants to try and get these enterprises up and going, but rather to, first of all, provide a very large liquidity facility because there was no liquidity there in the banking system. But then to go through the, uh, the nascent banking system that was there, uh, to try and, um, if you will, build uh, kind of an understanding of how a normalized credit allocation process goes. Uh, so to work with the banks to kind of make recommendations as to uh, what enterprises had the potential to recover and to repay, and then simultaneously uh, provide support to those enterprises to allow them to, if you will, to understand what a modern market system requires in terms of quality, in terms of standards, in terms of, and to sort of modernize their, uh, their own internal systems so that they could try and compete in the global marketplace where before they had really only 
had to deal a much a much narrower uh, market. So I think that uh, really allowed us to uh, very quickly um, ensure that credit was extended out to these uh, enterprises to rebuild and recover, uh, but in a way that actually proved fairly successful in terms of building the capacity of the local uh, financial institutions um, while ensuring that actually we did get a lot of reflows that could be recycled at the same time, of course, working um, with regulatory bodies and supervisory bodies uh, to build a, a longer term capacity uh, for oversight. Yeah, if you take a step back, it's pretty interesting to observe how many hats USAID was wearing, not just the liquidity hat or the regulatory hat, but also working with banks, the lenders, as well as with the investees, the borrowers, to be able to kind of create this entire ecosystem, this entire platform. It'd be hard to imagine a, a development bank playing that role today, um, given where the market is. Um, and so if we do consider those days, the early 90s, mid 90s, as level one, uh, and today going forward, the past 25 years, looking at the progress, it seems as though the funding mix or the source of capital, the pools of capital have, have really changed. So I'm just wondering, you know, how does the size of an envelope and the source of that capital change the power dynamics within a country? And how does an organization like USAID or any organization for that matter continue to influence the agenda when the allocation, the capital allocation is no longer the size or substance as it has been in the past? That's a good question, and, and perhaps that is a good analogy because um, at that point there was, again, very little liquidity. I'd say there was very little, if you will, local capital uh, in much of the world of our presence countries anyway. If you, if you look at the trend lines uh, in terms of uh, basically the levels of official development assistance, which is relatively flat, foreign direct investment, I'm saying over about the past 20 years, foreign direct investment that has maybe gone up, you know, twofold or so in, in, in real terms, um, which is not that much. Uh, but what has really spiked is uh, domestic public resources, in other words, uh, local capital uh, in our presence countries. And then even more than that, um, a huge amount of domestic resources, essentially taxation, fees, other uh, funds going, public funds going to uh, to the state. Um, so that really changes the conversation uh, from, I'd say, us being a funder of things to us being able to be a catalyzer of the funds that are within our presence countries and some of the funds that are seeking the, you know, the higher yields, uh, the foreign direct investment funds seeking the higher yield in our presence countries. So it changes, I would say, the focus in that we actually can use our funding very sparingly to catalyze that local capital uh, and that, that, uh, that foreign capital seeking investment in our presence countries. So let me take a step back because I think this is a really important point. If we were to think about major paradigm shifts over the last 20, 25 years in the development space, then essentially it's your perspective that the rise of local resources and local capital is probably one of the most significant. Do you think you could perhaps deep dive that a bit more, unpack it? 
from my perspective, and this is where my interest is, there's really the the pool of local uh, capital um, has really in our present countries uh, has really surged, uh, you know, fivefold or so. Uh, so if you look at, for example, things such as uh, domestic capital um, uh, to the private sector as a percent of GDP, that really has soared uh, really globally in lower middle income, lower income countries to the point that I would say, frankly, there's abundant local private capital uh, in our presence countries um, that can fund much of the, uh, probably all of the, if properly allocated, uh, the investment requirements uh, needed to, you know, for, for capital expenditure. And the benefit of that, of course, is it's it's local capital. So you <clears throat> rid the the exchange uh, the the exchange risk. So I'd say, really, from my perspective, our focus is really changing to less. How can we catalyze foreign capital, foreign investment capital into our business countries, and more? How can we catalyze that local private capital that's there uh, and get that. So the good news is there's abundant capital sort of out there globally in our presence countries. I know a McKinsey uh, a study estimated that um, uh, financial assets uh, in emerging markets uh, was increasing from something like 44 million in 2010 to, uh, sorry, trillion to 111 trillion dollars by 2020. Uh, that's $111 trillion is a lot of money, which implies to me that there's abundant capital. The question is, how can that be allocated effectively um, to productive uh, capital investment? How do you define productive capital investment, and how do you measure this? Um, I would say one of the benefits of uh, going through the financial markets, going through the banking system, going through the, you know, the investment uh, uh, providers in our presence countries is those actors are really good at ensuring that they will get um, that capital return to them and they will get a return on that. So in financial terms, it means that they are going to allocate capital to productive, quote, productive activities in the terms that productive are activities that will produce positive cash flows and produce a positive rate of return. So that certainly, I'd say, is a basic metric. We generally do not want to kind of have capital allocated to things that are not going to produce, if you will, returns. But with a caveat there that, of course, we have other objectives beyond pure financial return. We have, of course, social and economic perspective. But I'd say uh, I would be more comfortable with the financial markets allocating uh, capital for, if you will, equipment, technology, other sort of capital expenditures to support modernization. And then, um, and from another perspective, the way I look at it is essentially economic growth and the accomplishment of all our development objectives really is going to result from increased productivity. Increased productivity ultimately requires capital investment of some sort, right? Equipment, training, human capital, technology, various upgrades. And in general, those are going to require financing because the uh, the payback period on those investments tends to be multi-year and not immediate in there. So uh, I would, yeah, my, my preference would be for a really increased attention to 
the functioning of financial markets in the in our present countries and the allocation of capital. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you about global value chains? And I think that between like 1990 and 2007, this growth in global value chains accounted for more than 50% of global trade. And a lot of it was backed by, you know, new technological advancements and transform in transportation and information and communication and such. And the countries obviously that benefit this were like North America, Western Europe, and East Asia. But countries like Africa, Central Asia, Latin America, Southeast Asia are still kind of the producers of commodities and such. And so I'm wondering, is there still room for these countries to kind of get into this value chain game to be producing at a higher value, you know, so that they're not downstream, they're kind of at the upstream and kind of pull themselves out of the situations that they might be in? And if so, kind of what's the role of development agencies to help? I think it's a really good question. It's a very hard question. Um, it's difficult for countries, for example, producing cacao, where it can be produced in, in multiple countries, to be price setters, which many cases causes them to be, you know, of course, price takers. And it certainly can lead to inequitable distribution of the benefits of efficient modern supply chains. Uh, where the benefits can be captured sort of at the at the back end and uh, the producers and the you know the primary processors are not getting um, uh, a sort of a fair share. I hope that and I think that um, those sort of end actors right the the sort of the aggregators and end producers are becoming more cognizant of the importance of having, smoothly functioning supply chains and to me that implies uh, and I think they're seeing that that implies that there has to be more equitable sharing of the value created by those value chains but I don't know that I think that's more of a hope than any sort of empirical evidence that that is occurring. Yeah, I, I think it might be really interesting actually to to look at that more closely. I know that from a humanitarian perspective, being able to localize the value chain is critical in order for us to be able to source goods and services quickly and cost effectively. Um, having to go overseas to get masks and, and syringes has a price of X plus one, whereas if you just buy it locally, it could be just X. This brings me to my next question, which is, what's your perspective around the relationship and engagement between humanitarian and development agencies? Is there something that we should be focusing on? Are there mechanisms that can help facilitate this relationship? And if so, how would they look and what's sort of the structure for that? Uh, I certainly think there's a role. I think we're trying to figure it out, but certainly uh, AID and others have operated across the spectrum, if you will, from sort of encouraging economic growth uh, on the one end and, you know, sort of creating the sustainable conditions uh, to addressing crises and humanitarian needs in there. Um, What I'd say is uh, that in terms of... uh, the the way that I would approach it is that uh, there's sort of a shared, um, I think, uh, a sort of a shared view that a better world, uh, a more equitable world is better for everyone. 
um, how does one accomplish that from my perspective? Um, one accomplishes that by creating um, enterprises uh, that are productive, that are going to produce positive returns, that in turn can create employment. Um, I think most people uh, in the world want employment. They want to take care of their, their, their families and themselves, and they want nothing more than the opportunity to be, if you will, productive members of the global economy. How can we help to do that? Um, well, one of the challenges, I think, is that we want to be careful, uh, from my perspective, in ensuring the primacy of the market and that we are not um, basically disincentivizing uh, market behavior, but with the understanding that the markets in the countries we work in have great um, imperfections, um, if not sort of market failures in there. So how do we sort of address these imperfections or market failures? Well, one of the, the real amazing, I think, tools that has uh, come into use in the last uh, several years is the idea of blended finance and the idea that uh, really um, we would like markets to function. We would like, uh, in my case, and I'm a finance person, to be allocated on the basis of uh, basically market forces. But what we have to acknowledge is that um, in most of our present countries, the transaction costs and the risks are higher than they are, if you will, in OECD countries. And as such, that constrains kind of more uh, transactions from getting done. So let's just take the case of we use in a training we provide of a tractor services company in Illinois and a tractor service company in Ghana, both of whom are going to provide tractor servicing to contract uh, plowing fields that provides enormous uh, economic benefit uh, to the community and both are going to generate positive cash flows. In Illinois though, the required um, rate of return, if you will, or the interest rate is going to be significantly lower uh, and um, as such, uh, the cash flows, you know, should be sufficient to cover the required financing costs or the, 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 the financing they will need to, to engage in this tractor services venture. In Ghana, by conflict, same transaction may not get done, not because the transaction is any different, but simply because the, the financing costs or the required rate of return in Ghana is simply higher. The use of blended capital provides, I think, a way for us to say, okay, the transaction itself is not the problem. It's the environment that is the problem. And we can use blended capital, if you will, to sort of compensate for, if you will, the, you know, the adverse market conditions, the higher risk, the higher transaction costs. In my mind, if we do that properly, we're really not distorting in any effective way, we're rather correcting for the distortions that occur in the market because of the higher risk and transaction costs uh, that prevail in uh, most of our presence countries. Actually, I want to pick up on something that you've alluded to a few times, and I think this is USAID's financing Ghanaian agriculture project, which is for short FinGAP. And I'm wondering, FinGAP aside for, for a moment, some investors, private investors, have criticized development agencies such as USAID, DFID, and others 
for creating this market distortion with easy money, chasing deals that probably would have gotten done regardless. Back in 2010, 2011, I worked for IFC in Mongolia, and I saw firsthand how easy money or soft loans can kind of distort the market. And one case was with the Shangri-La Hotel, which is owned by the Kwok family from Hong Kong, which is a five-star hotel. The situation there was that the Shangri-La took over half of the children's park, and that was an amusement park where kids would go and play for, for years. And there's not a lot of open space in, in Ulaanbaatar uh, at the time. And um, it was done under the idea that ecotourism would be promoted through supporting hotel chains, but really it was just a kind of a sweetheart deal. I think with that in mind, um, in looking at innovative financing as a potential solution, as a way to kind of avoid market distortions while maximizing outcomes, um, crowding private sector, I'm wondering, you know, what role do you think innovation can play, innovative financing can play? Um, what are some of the new innovations that you're working on that show real promise? What are some solutions or mechanisms that don't have a very high cost of capital, that don't require subsidies, that on the surface kind of is a win-win for, for all the participants? Well, I think blended capital is really, um, in my mind, you know, really a very powerful tool. And it used to be called uh, subsidy, and when it was subsidy, it was a really shameful, shabby kind of a thing that nobody wanted to acknowledge. <laughs> but then um, with the term blending capital, all of a sudden it's, it's sort of eminently respectable. So the problem is it's a very powerful tool, but it can be a dangerous tool. Basically, when one is using blended capital, one is kind of interfering in some degree, you know, creating some 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 market distortions. The idea is, how does one do that at the at the margin, uh, so that the distortion is not enough to create a significant uh, kind of behavior change, or put it simply, to sort of get bad transactions done that shouldn't shouldn't get done because they have been overly subsidized. So I think uh, blended capital is a wonderful innovation. We're really trying to figure it out. There are a lot of uh, sort of issues with it. How does one sort of minimize the, uh, you know, the cost of that because they are public funds that are going for private benefit? How does one minimize, if you will, that, that subsidy? How do we assure that we're not creating excessive market distortions in there? Um, how are we maximizing our leverage? How are we assuring that when we use it, it's for transactions that wouldn't otherwise occur rather than transactions that would occur? So additionality is a big um, is a big challenge. The other thing uh, that we're focusing on is really more of the kind of pay for results um, approach in kind of shifting the risk, uh, the development of risk of transactions uh, more to our implementing partners. But with that, really empowering them as more um, to address uh, development challenges. So traditionally, we have sort of ourselves uh, you know, operated in our offices with a development challenge, written up a scope of work, handed it off and said, sort of go do this. Uh, with pay for results, the approach changes a bit. And we're saying, here is the problem we're trying to solve. Here is what we think uh, we, you know, should be a reasonable price. And, and we do that obviously in a collaborative manner and empower others to sort of take risks and go out there to meet those challenges. Um, and address those challenges, uh, which I do, do think creates more risk-taking, 
and more opportunity for new actors to come in. And along with that, in certainly in, in our agency, um, there's a conscious effort to engage more uh, new non-traditional actors as partners and particularly engage with the private sector and, you know, and enterprises who have not traditionally uh, had a role in this space. But we think that we certainly, in most cases, there's the opportunity, if not for shared value, uh, then aligned interest where private enterprises have sort of economic goals and, and financial goals that they want to accomplish. And if we can team with them to uh, sort of allow them to achieve their economic financial returns, but also uh, work with them to also accomplish other economic and social goals, that sort of is a win-win uh, situation for, for all the parties. Lawrence, can you give us some examples of the pay-for-performance or pay-for-results solutions that you're working on? Uh, sure. Um, well, I can go back to uh, – I can, well, we have a, a project in, um, in Kenya called the Kenya uh, Investment Mechanism. Uh, and it's an investment mobilization platform. But the logic is that uh, the Kenya mission has objectives across the spectrum. It has agriculture objectives, it has health objectives, it has wash objectives, power objectives. And all of these objectives in one way or another are going to uh, require capital investment uh, by somebody somewhere in there. We want to encourage that investment, but we're also aware that um, – Financing can be a bit more challenging in Kenya simply because, again, the higher risks and transaction costs. So in that activity, uh, we're really taking a, a sort of a, an approach that we want the market to be front and center, but we want to encourage the market to, to finance transactions that are important to us. So WASH transactions obviously have benefit in terms of, of health and uh, uh, agriculture, uh, to the degree to which agriculture transactions throughout the uh, the supply chain from on-field on-farm investments to, you know, to, to post-harvest processing and all the way through, those are going to create more value and uh, in the system and likewise in health. How do we accomplish that? In that approach, um, we're saying, okay, we can assist the market in financing these transactions by A, driving in a transaction of potential transaction. One of the problems we hear from finance providers, banks, and others is that they don't get kind of the the transactions uh, requests in a way that they can review them to the degree to which we can support them by driving through a, a broad pipeline of transactions in areas that are important to our de development objectives. We reduce the transaction costs and make life easier for finance providers. Once we have a pipeline of transactions, and just to step back on that, um, certainly transaction origination is nothing new, but the approach we are using in transaction origination is to really use a pay for results approach where transaction originators uh, or business advisor service providers are paid not for a completion of a, a financing proposal, but rather primarily whether that transaction uh, gets financed or not. 
which really tends to make them focused on transactions that have a higher possibility. But once we have that pipeline of transactions, that makes it easier to assemble a broad group of finance providers with the full spectrum from venture capital providers to senior debt providers to you know microfinance institutions, the full spectrum of, of finance providers to finance the full spectrum of needs. And then the, 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 the kind of secret sauce we have in that that really makes it work is a fairly large pool of catalytic capital, which allows us, if and as needed, to sort of drop in, really with an eyedropper rather than a hose, uh, the amount of blended capital uh, needed for transactions that are close to, to kind of uh, a financeable return to get across the finish line, simply because these transactions are occurring in Kenya rather than Kansas where the required rate of return is going to be lower simply because of the, again, lower transaction costs and risks. Mm -hmm. So speaking about time value of money, I have one final question for you. In fact, I have probably 10 final questions for you, but we'll stick with this one. If you were to take a snapshot of development finance today, toss that photo into a lockbox for the next decade, and then on March 12th, 2030, 10 years later, take another snapshot of development finance, what would the comparison look like? So in other words, what can we expect from development assistance over the next 10 years? So I was giving a little talk and I, I kind of made a joke uh, that I think is actually fairly apropos, but I, um, I said, uh, first of all, how many of you have been in the Peace Corps? And as you would assume, probably about 30% raise their hands. And I said, how many of you have actually worked on structuring junk bonds or high yield debt and no hands um, you know, rose? And I said, and that's what makes me kind of particularly well suited for this uh, job because uh, basically, if you look at our presence countries, none of them or very few of them are, you know, sort of investment grade, if you will, uh, which is not to say that there, you know, there's nothing um, good or bad about being investment grade, just that basically uh, non-investment grade transactions are hard to get done. And if you look at the enterprises within our countries, our presence countries, certainly very few of them are would be, quote, investment grade. But that's not a problem. Uh, that means essentially that what you need to do is to kind of shift your emphasis um, to kind of a finance catalyst or a finance structure so that you're really playing that game of kind of structured finance of, okay, how can we kind of work to get transactions done and across the finish line at the lowest possible cost so that we can get them to clear in the marketplace. And we certainly, you know, we appreciate the value of impact capital, uh, philanthropic capital, but at the end of the day, we're really interested in attracting as much as possible commercial capital because that's, you know, as they say, where the money is. So as I see kind of moving forward in 10 years, I think we should be increasingly out of the paying for things game, the funding things uh, game, and more in the business of, okay, how can we bring in private capital, the private sector into really take the lead in solving development challenges with our role really being sort of that, you know, that finance catalyst or that kind of 
you know, that structured finance provider that's in there to say, okay, how do we kind of what sort of combination of, if you will, blended capital, technical assistance, partial guarantees, other sorts of kind of tools and techniques that we have, can we, you know, to get these transactions across? So we, and, and I think we have a, a course we do called Mobilizing Finance for Development. And we use what we call as five points framework to sort of look at kind of what impacts transactions. Certainly you've got enabling conditions, um, affects all transactions. You've got financial sector infrastructure. You've got finance seekers, and there are things we can do with them, technical assistance, high core, you know, support, et cetera. And finance providers, we can provide partial guarantees. We can provide money capital, technical assistance. And then you have this fifth quadrant that we're sort of playing with that's kind of disruptors and fintech and other kinds of sort of things that are changing the dynamics. The point of all this is that in each of these areas, we do have tools that we can bring to bear, levers, if you will, that can make transactions easier to get. So to go back to this analogy of kind of finance catalyst or structured finance actor in here, I think our role is really to sort of look at the various levers we can pull in these different five points so that we can most efficiently get these transactions done. And not only in, in here and now, kind of transactions today that are important to us, but also think as well on the kind of more structural um, challenges uh, so that over time we can, again, do less of the kind of workaround activities because the markets themselves, the these economies themselves, will have basically the transaction costs and risks will have reduced because of stronger financial sector infrastructure and stronger enabling conditions. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. Lawrence, thanks a lot for carving out some time this morning to chat with us. Have a great weekend. And more importantly, thanks for helping us get behind the noise. Uh, thank you, Adam. It's a pleasure. Behind the noise with Adam Bornstein. Behind the noise, behind the noise.